electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu, in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on the show. We're in the final countdown to the Fed's big decision on interest rates. No cut is expected today, but any clues on when that first cut could come, that is what investors will be watching very closely for today. And our guests disagree on when that is and why it's going to happen. They're here to make their respective cases. Plus, the Fed's higher for longer mantra may be coming to an end, but the ripple effects of high rates on the consumer could be persistent. We'll talk about some of the trouble spots that may be brewing underneath the surface. And speaking of those red flags, there are several around earnings that are popping up. We're going to tell you what they are and what it may tell us about the market direction from here. But we begin with a check on the markets. And right now, we are seeing what could be characterized as a holding pattern, if you want to look at it that way. Right now, the Dow Industrial is up just about one-tenth of 1%. The S&P 500 down about three-quarters of 1%. And the Nasdaq Composite down over 1%. Now, the reason why for the outsized declines there, we'll talk about a little bit later on. But Treasuries, interest rates, always a key part of every big Fed day. As for right now, the two-year note yield, just about a 4.24%. The benchmark 10-year note yield, 3.96%. And right now, Boeing is currently up 6%, helping a lot of that outperformance of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, Better than expected report with regard to their quarterly results, helping to drive that action. We'll talk about more of that throughout the course of this afternoon. We are less than an hour away from the Fed decision, and Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve with what to expect and what to watch out for all before he goes into that all-important Fed lockup. Steve, what should we be all, all watching for at this point? I think it all comes down to the statement. Of course, we'll be watching and listening to what the Fed chair has to say, but it starts with the statement. That comes out at 2 o'clock, and the focus will be on one statement in the statement, which is this one, in determining the extent of any additional policy firming. The idea is that the Fed is believed, that may be appropriate, of course, is that the Fed is probably going to come off of that. Uh, What's happened, if you look at the probabilities, we can come come back to that later. The probabilities have changed at uh, near 60% for a March cut. We'll see how that reacts to the statement. Krishna Guha, I think, from Evercore ISI, put it best when he said the Fed will want to convey, quote, we're on track, we're not rushing, our lean is May or June, not March, while keeping the door maybe slightly ajar for March. March, uh, Dominic. I think that's the key. Different ways to go about this. They may talk about the idea that they're going to take their time and keep rates at a restrictive level for some time, or they may use the word patience, which is uh, another word they've used back in 2004. Those are some ideas that are floating around, but that's the key, the key line in the statement. Everybody's going to be watching them. All right, Steve, I'm looking at my monitor right now. The two-year note yields, just like I said, about 4.24%. What exactly could that shorter end of that yield curve tell us about what, do we, what we could expect, at least? 
about the Fed? Well, there's there's been a lot going on this morning, sort of apart from the Fed. Uh, if you look at what's happened to the two-year, it was down at 1.12, 13, 14 basis points. Um, and the thinking, what I've heard from different desks today is that it's the market reacting. You had some better data, some better inflation data. The employment cost index came in below expectations. The ADP data came in below expectations. All of that points to the economy doing some softening. But the key here might have been what happened to some of the regional bank stocks. New New York Bank Corporation came out, or Community Bank Corporation came out with some uh, a, a warning. It cut its dividend. It reduced uh, uh, its outlook, um, and also talked about the need to raise regulatory capital. And you can see what happened to the regional banks, Dom. They were down quite a bit today, over 4% today. Not the big banks, by the way. The big banks did not necessarily take it on the chin. They had been down a little bit. I guess they're even up a little bit right now. But look at the regional banks. Now, the idea being why the probabilities moved, well, maybe some problems, if they're brewing in the community banks, Dom, could potentially move the Fed a little more quickly and raise the prospect for that March rate cut. All right. Possible credit tightening in the works there, maybe, hypothetically. Steve, hypothetically. thank you very much for that. We'll see you later on. All right. While our next guests don't expect the Fed to start cutting rates today, they do differ on when easing will start and the reasons why. Joining me now are Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy at Societe Generale. Also, Paul Christopher, head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. And also Joe Lavornia, chief economist at SMBC Nico Securities America. Uh, thank all of you for being here with us. Subhadra, I, I wonder, we talked just briefly with Steve about the expectations here. There is at least some sign that the economy may not be all as rosy as we think it is, and banks may be prepping for a little bit more of a headwind ahead. Does that change the outlook for the Fed at all? Well, I think today's data definitely caught the market by surprise. Uh, You know, as just before the news broke out on on the regional bank, um, what we uh, saw was actually the market wasn't fully pricing in a March rate cut. Now the odds of a March rate cut have definitely increased um, after uh, today's news. Um, Broadly speaking, the economy has been relatively strong. You're looking at a very strong third and fourth quarter of last year. The momentum seems to be working its way into uh, the first quarter, I should say the first month of the year. So we think it's probably a little bit premature for the Fed to cut rates at the March meeting. Perhaps a May or June start for rate cuts makes the most sense, given how strong the data has been. And how, uh, you know, we're going to get an employment uh, figure on Friday. I think you're going to get a a relatively strong print. Inflation's been trending lower. So I think that the Fed has the luxury to wait before they cut rates. All right. A weaker than expected private payrolls number. Inflation perhaps softening. Uh, Paul Christopher, let me head over your way as well. The economic picture broadly, I mean, not very many people can dispute that some of the general headline numbers have been solid. Does the Fed have cover? to be able to wait this out a little bit more? Or are we keying more on things like the private payroll support this morning and the problems that we're seeing at New York Community Bank? The Fed does have cover to wait a little bit longer and to be a little bit more patient. That's been their game plan for the last several months. We think they'll continue that. Look, if the economy is going to grow strongly, then earnings will be better than expected, but inflation will take longer to get down to 2%. If the economy is going to all of a sudden fall off a cliff and maybe we have banks leading the way, uh, then you you don't have a you don't have a real good earnings picture. But you might get the Fed to cut rates. I just don't see we don't really see 
how you get this Goldilocks scenario of the economy's still strong, but the Fed cuts rates and inflation falls. That's a good point. And Joe, with that in mind, what would then be the strategy and what are you seeing through your models? Is the U.S. economy in as good a shape as the headline hard figures would dictate? I don't believe so, Dom, because the income side of the economy shows a much weaker uh, profile on growth than GDP does. We don't have the fourth quarter numbers yet, but we have seen last year, for example, employment being revised down in 10 of the last 11 months. So the income side of the economy shows a much different profile than the GDP data. And my guess is when we get the fourth quarter income numbers at the end of March, it will continue to show weaker growth. What I think matters in the short run is the fact that inflation is at the Fed's target, actually a shade below. If you look at the six-month rates of annualized change in the core PC deflator, which is the Fed's preferred metric, we're actually under 2% in the last two months. The reason why I believe the Fed should cut and the Fed should cut as soon as March is because monetary policy has to anticipate where the economy is likely to go. And with where real rates are, if just the inflation numbers themselves continue to trend downward, as I believe the momentum shows, the Fed will want to offset that, lower those real rates, and begin that process sooner rather than later. So, uh, Subhadra, Joe brings up an excellent point. I mean, in every part of business and economy, with the exception maybe of central bank and planning, you kind of want to skate to where the puck is going to be, right? You want to anticipate what's going to happen. You want to be a little bit more proactive and get ahead of these things and not be behind the curve. Does that mean then we emphasize the soft, forward-looking economic data, which may be showing signs of stress, versus the data-dependent hard data, which is still showing us, yes, maybe backward-looking type views, but is still supportive of this idea that the economy is relatively strong? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And I would say that, uh, you know, to, to, to Joe's point, uh, there's another consideration that we should be looking at, which is that it's an election year and there's a potential that maybe the Fed doesn't want to start cutting rates very close. Because to they don't want to seem like they're being political, yes. tilting towards one side or the other. Yeah. But I think our, our base case view is that with the uh, dramatic repricing of rate cuts, we have nearly 150 basis points of rate cuts already priced in the market. And we've seen a pretty meaningful, sizable easing of financial conditions. I mean, equities are at all-time highs. Credit spreads are extraordinarily tight. So again, this all points to the fact that, I mean, going back to the November meeting, uh, Chair Powell wanted to see a persistence of tighter financial conditions. And we haven't really seen that. Uh, so in some respects, it feels like they probably want to see inflation durably approaching the 2% target as opposed <clears throat> to just looking at the near-term inflationary prints uh, for them to start cutting rates. So I think that they have the luxury to wait, and they probably will. When do you think, just by the way, to follow up, Sir when do you, you mentioned May, June. Is that, is that your target? And if so, how many rate cuts do you think happen if they do start in that kind of May through July time frame? So our expectation coming into this year that it was that they would probably cut rates by 150 basis points. But given how strong the economy is, I feel like the market's efficiently priced for that scenario and perhaps overpricing the risk of cuts for this year. So we think a May start makes sense, but perhaps uh, the market's uh, pricing in too much by way of cuts uh, for this year. So maybe three or four cuts for this year makes sense. Three or four quarter point cuts. Quarter point cuts. Okay. So, Paul, I'm going to ask you a similar question here. I'd like to know your baseline expectations. You mentioned the cover that the Fed has right now. They don't have to rush things in your mind. What do you think it should be 
in the Fed's mind? They start, and then how many do we get throughout the course of this year? Yeah, the liquidity point you just made is a very good one. And so we think three to four rate cuts this year, probably beginning mid-year, maybe as soon as May. Okay, so that's the, the condition there. Joe, what's your outlook here? You, you think they yeah. cut maybe as, as, as soon as March? Yeah, I think March. I mean, look, the, 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 you have to go back to 1984, the last time the Fed has not started, started rate cuts in a presidential election year, at least going back since 1984. So the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be for them to move. If they think they're going to move, then they've got to have some confidence in their forecast and move sooner. On financial conditions, it is true for investors, financial conditions have eased tremendously, but they haven't eased for 70 percent of the economy. Households are facing still very high mortgage rates, auto rates, credit card rates, personal loan rates at the time because the yield curve is so inverted. Banks have been tightening standards. The Fed needs to cut 150 this this year on rates and another 150 next year to normalize that yield curve and to prevent a hard landing. Paul, uh, I'm going to give you the last word here. One of the things that we've noticed a lot about, and to Joe's point here, uh, many of America's banks, whether they be small, medium or large, have -hmm. increased their loan loss reserves over the course of the last few quarters here. They're anticipating what could be a weaker economic outlook for the U.S. consumer. Do you feel as though that is a sign that we are not emphasizing enough or are the banks simply just trying to be ultra conservative with regard to how they approach the coming year? No, we would agree that the the economy definitely is weakening. weakening. It's one of the clearest trends that we can see coming into 2024. But that liquidity, the AI theme, uh, the the idea of a soft landing, that everything is going to fall into place perfectly seems to be what's driving this market right now. The Fed really cannot contribute at the moment to those kinds of conditions. The point about the Fed looking forward is a very good one. Uh, but they 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 really do have some some patience that, that they can take here. We think they will. All right. Paul Christopher, Joe Lavornia, Subhadra Rajapa, thank you guys all for being here. And thanks for making the trip into the studio for us. Subhadra. Thank you. All right. Coming up on the show, we are tackling a ton of names and earnings exchange. Two big movers from last night, two big names that are on deck and what the results say about the overall health of the market. That's coming up next. Plus, mortgage rates, we just talked about them, holding steady below 7% right now for 30-year fixed rates. We'll look at how buyer demand is doing and what the Fed's next steps mean for your bottom line. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. We're more than a third of the way through earnings season, and so far, profits have been far better than Wall Street was expecting. But despite all the earnings beats, there are some worrying trends under the surface. And that's where we start today's earnings exchange with our very own Bob Bassani to take us through what the big picture is telling us so far into the earnings season. Bob. Good to see you, Dom, here. Uh, turning uh, to, to a number of things here, we've got a couple of com- companies right now. The profits have been far better uh, than Wall Street expected here. Uh, I think the most important thing is the S&P fourth quarter earnings are expected to rise 6% from a year ago with 80% of the reports topping earnings expectations. Now, they're beating by a very wide margin, uh, thanks to drastically slashed estimates coming into earnings season. But despite all the earnings beats, many companies remain cautious looking forward, giving a very weak first or full quarter guidance. So there's another cause of concern here, and that's tempered sales. More than a third of the reports have missed revenue estimates. Some, like UPS and Whirlpool, have cited weaker demand and reduced pricing power. Others, like 3M, Texas Instruments, and Procter & Gamble, have blamed China weakness. Finally, there's even Mideast tensions here. Red Sea attacks have increased freight costs and they've delayed some shipments. Gaza tensions have spurred some anti-American sentiment. Oreo maker Mondelez said the Middle East and the Southeast Asia sales have been impacted. Starbucks said even U.S. sales have been hurt due to misperceptions about our, perception, about our position. So, Dom, it's a complicated picture. Here's the most important thing that's going on. The reason the S&P 500 is at a new high right now is because of technology. It's far and away the most important sector in the S&P. It's 25% of the earnings weight, and the estimates are expected to be up almost 20% this quarter. Dom, as long as the estimates and the numbers for technology continue to come in reasonably strong, that's going to help power the S&P 500 forward, even when you get pockets of weakness. And we have seen some pockets of weakness, particularly in some of the consumer staples and a few pieces of the industrial space. Don? It remains the most important sector out there in just about every respect. Bob, thank you very much for the look there. Turning now to that technology trade and AMD, the company reported last night with results in line with expectations, but the stock is falling 4% today on weaker first quarter guidance. Let's bring in now Christina Partsinevelis for more on that AMD story in the chip picture. Christina. Well, the AMD story does revolve around AI. And although AMD did increase its 2024 AI chip revenue to 3.5 billion from 2 billion, that number was largely expected. If anything, some of the buy side thought it would be up as high as $4 billion. And that's why we're seeing the recent run-up in the stock more than 25% year-to-date. Most investors were expecting this increase, and the stock even doubling since October. Some were hoping for just an even bigger AI revenue number for 2024. And so that's strike one, why you saw the stock sell off earlier this morning, down almost 5%. It's come back a little bit. Much like Intel, AMD's March guide came in a little light with outsized weakness in gaming, which is supposed to fall 30% quarter over quarter in Q1, the current quarter we're in right now, and then also a major drop in embedded chips. The size of those two drops within embedded and gaming was a little unexpected, so that was strike two on the stock. Despite the weaker guide, though, Wall Street still loves AMD, and that's why so many analysts, and when I say so many, I went through so many reports this morning, and you saw massive price increases, price targets, some calling this a buying opportunity for AMD, given uh, the sell-off today, which really has come back, right? It was down 5% this morning, and now it's only down about 2%, as this is seen as a chip that can provide an alternative to NVIDIA's pricier chips throughout the rest of this year. And not just that, a lot of investors looking at it as a possible catch-up trade to that NVIDIA trade as well. Uh, Christina, this brings us to Qualcomm. The company is set to report after the bell today. That stock is up more than 30%. 
just the last three months, and you're at a pretty good location to see why. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I was trying to keep the background a little generic right now, but yes, I am at Qualcomm's headquarters. Qualcomm, on the other hand, has more exposure to smartphones and with almost 75% of their total revenue coming from that segment. After two years of declines within smartphone shipments, we're actually expecting unit growth for 2024. And of course, that bodes well for smartphone, uh, Qualcomm, given their exposure. We're expecting levels to stabilize, demands to improve. We saw that with Skyworks uh, earnings report just yesterday. And this improvement should actually help offset any weakness that we might see from the auto sector. Think on semi microchip. Both those companies warned about double ordering and weakness within uh, auto. But long term, there are a few risks that still remain with Qualcomm. You've got a growing chip competition within the mobile sector from Apple, Samsung, Huawei in China. And then possibly the lack of a momentum around AI on the edge. So that's anything on your, your PC, your smartphone, uh, bringing that AI technology, large language models to the edge. And so the revenue monetization for that has yet to be seen and could be why some investors may stay on the sidelines for a little bit longer with Qualcomm. But all of these issues I definitely plan uh, to bring up with Qualcomm CEO Cristiano uh, just a bit in a few hours on last call, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We'll have an exclusive interview just on CNBC. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest in that Snapdragon line that they have over there and whether it can be part of this whole AI trade. Christina, thank you very much for the report. We'll look forward to yours this afternoon for Qualcomm. Let's now stick with the tech trade, but move on to Microsoft, the software maker posting a beat on the top and bottom lines. Thanks to strong Azure clouds, uh, cloud computing growth. But that stock, as you can see, they're down slightly today. Maybe one and a third percent isn't so slight. But for more on the story. Let's bring in CNBC's own technology correspondent, Steve Kovac, with this. Uh, Qualcomm focus is going to be on Snapdragon. We could see Microsoft being a little bit more on Azure and, of course, OpenAI and ChatGPT as well. Yeah, that's right, Dom. And Azure was the big number that stuck out to most people yesterday, uh, beating for the second uh, quarter in a row expectations. Street was expecting 27.5% growth. They got 30% growth and six points of that growth. This is super important, Dom. Six points of that growth, uh, Microsoft says, came from AI services activity on the Azure cloud. So while the other part of Azure cloud may not be growing as fast as investors would have hoped, because the more traditional part of the Azure cloud business, that could be why we're seeing some pressure on the stock in addition to the commentary on the call about all the capital expenditures going into this AI moment for Microsoft kind of dragging things down. But look, it is a very positive AI story for Microsoft to tell that not only direct sales from Copilot, are they benefiting from from AI, but also all that AI activity happening on Azure, Dom. All right, and let's go to the other of the two most valuable companies out there, Steve. We've got Apple after the closing bell tomorrow. The shares are under pressure so far this year after a handful of downgrades. Steve, what are the three things that we want to watch for with regard to Apple after the bell tomorrow? Yeah, Dom, the big, the big one is revenue growth. Can Apple return to that top line revenue growth after a full fiscal year, four quarters in a row of declining sales for Apple? Expectations, uh, you know, Street's expecting about $118 billion in revenue. That sounds like a lot, but it would if that does happen, it would only be uh, not even 1% uh, top line revenue growth and still not exactly a record quarter uh, for Apple as far as top line sales growth. Uh, and there's just a lot of questions 
questions going on because of that. The second thing I would point to is China. Huge question about the consumer over in China. The uh, reopening of China has uh, not gone to plan for not just for Apple, but so many other consumer electronics companies. Um, and part of that for on the Apple side is the return of Huawei. That company, the homegrown company, has been out of the smartphone game for a couple years, started making phones again last year, and we're getting real evidence, not just last year and into this year, uh, that they're taking uh, some share away from Apple in China, and that's expected to continue uh, throughout this year. Ming-Chin Kuo, who's a top a Apple analyst, Dom, uh, yesterday put out a report saying uh, iPhone shipments could fall 15% this year, uh, and weighing heavily on that is China, specifically Huawei, and specifically this Chinese consumer demand for those foldable phones, which, of course, Apple doesn't uh, have. And then the third thing I point to is, as I say every quarter, wait for the earnings call, because that is when we'll hear from CFO Luca Maestri. He'll give some guidance for the March quarter. There's a lot of doom and gloom in the analyst community right now around that March quarter. Uh, so any hints that we get, uh, they don't do formal guidance. They haven't done it since the COVID pandemic hit. But any hints that we get uh, of some renewed growth in the March quarter um, and any kind of uh, other uh, color of what they expect to see for the rest of the year, that's going to be super important. So listen to the call, not just their earnings report, Don. All right. That's the state of play there for Apple and Microsoft. Steve Kovac, Christina Partsanevelis, and Bob Bassani, thank you very much for the earnings exchange today. Still ahead on the show, we've mentioned regional banks having their worst day since October on some disappointing results from the financials, and one in particular. But coming up, we'll speak to the CEO of Texas-based Frostbank about the lending environment and the path forward for the Fed as well. We've got just over 30 minutes until that big interest rate decision or indecision. We're back after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. President Biden's brother, James Biden, is scheduled to face the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees in February, part of the committee's impeachment inquiry into the president. The closed-door interview will see whether the president had any involvement or influence in his brother's business activities. The committee has not provided any evidence yet that supports any such claim. James Biden's interview is a week before Hunter Biden is set to appear in a similar interview. Georgia legislators are weighing whether to add a watermark to the state's ballots. The decision comes as some supporters of Donald Trump continue to pursue unfounded claims of ballot forgery in the 2020 election. The measure still needs the state Senate's vote before it gets to the governor's desk. And organizers of the Paris Olympic Games say 300,000 people will be able to attend the opening ceremony. That's only half of what organizers had originally planned. No reason was given for the revision. The ceremony will be held along the River Seine, 
marking the first time it will not be in a stadium. Don't be if you want it to be in a stadium for the opening. Uh, you don't need one when you're in the City of Lights, Bertha. Right. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for the news update there. Let's turn now to the housing market. We're ahead of today's Fed. We haven't really seen mortgage rates move, at least in the last few weeks. Diana Olick joins us now. And Diana, why is this bad and why could it be about to change? Well, I didn't I don't think it's bad in any sense. They haven't really moved because there hasn't been any unexpected economic data in the last couple of weeks. That said, rates actually fell a little bit today to 6.75 percent on the 30 year fix, according to Mortgage News Daily. And that was because of some brighter than expected economic data and uh, some banking drama that might insinuate that the Fed could be a little softer going forward. But again, all bets are off today in the afternoon. It's not a question of whether people think the Fed's going to cut today. They don't. It's what what they say, what is in the commentary, what comes out today about the future that could affect rates going forward. And then, Dom, you know, it's Friday jobs report. That's always a big game changer when it comes to mortgage rates, which loosely follow the 10-year Treasury. The granddaddy of all financial and economic reports there, Diana. So mortgage demand from home buyers, it seemed to be bouncing back, but it dropped last week. What exactly happened? Yeah, so we thought there was this great big surge, and there was at the beginning of the year. People came out of the holidays, they saw lower mortgage rates, they saw a little more inventory on the market, and they came out ready to buy. Realtors were saying that they were having lots of demand at open houses, people walking through. But the big issue now is affordability. Prices are just very high, and rates, you know, they're lower than they were. We had 8% in October, now we're at 6.75. It's not really enough to counter some of these really high prices. And then, while some inventory did come on the market, they're still just not a lot out there and definitely not a lot in the affordable category. So while you see more higher end homes coming on the market, a lot more, most people can't afford those. So the buyers who want to get in, the first time buyers, realtors told us last week, they're just not there. Now we did see pending home sales in December take a nice jump that signed contracts on existing homes, but that was December when there was less competition. January now, we're just seeing a lot of competition, high prices, and that may be why the demand is coming down on the mortgage applications. All right, Diana, speaking of those prices, we saw in the Case-Shiller Home Price Index report yesterday that many home prices may be cooling. Is that good news for buyers now and in that all-important spring market that is yet to come? Yeah, Dom, I'm going to call that a little bit of a head fake. Why? Because the Case-Shiller report actually was for November. They're always a two-month lagging indicator, and they're based on a three-month running average. So that means that at the end of November, that was what they saw was this slight dip in prices. Why? Because mortgage rates in October hit 8% and stayed pretty high throughout November. So you're looking at the 8% mortgage rate effect on home prices, which really, you know, was cooling the market and bringing prices down. Now you've got the 6% range going forward, I think you're going to see prices heat up again because you've got the 6% range. It means buyers have more purchasing power and there's more competition and that's going to lift prices again. I'm sorry to say. It's the eternal real estate paradox between rates and prices. Diana Olick, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. So our next guest says prospective home buyers will get the most relief from interest rate cuts while those with car loans and credit card debt might still be in a tougher spot. But he doesn't see those cuts for a while and says cracks in the consumer are growing, as we mentioned earlier in the show, in the meantime. So joining me now is Ted Rossman, the Bankrate Senior Industry Analyst. Ted, you just heard Diana's report. She lays out very eloquently the things that all home buyers are dealing with right now. 
you want lower rates, but if lower rates happen, people can use that buying power to bid up home prices. How do we break the cycle? Well, that's what's especially difficult for first-time buyers, too, because they don't have any equity to trade in. Although even existing buyers, they have their own challenges because you're going to trade a 3 or 4% mortgage rate for a 6 or 7 That's not a great trade. So that's helping to keep inventory low. It's helping to keep prices high. It's kind of this vicious cycle. What exactly does the spring market look like to you? I understand that you know, you're not a housing-specific analyst, but there are signs out there that the spring season may not just be that robust because the inventory issues still remain. What does it mean for buying power and prices? Inventory is an issue, but we are starting to see glimmers of hope on the rate front. For example, Diana mentioned rates briefly crossed 8% back in October. Now the national average is 6.93, still high relative to the past 10 years or so. But now that's going to save you $222 a month on your $300,000 loan. That's starting to make a difference. The strong job market is helpful, too. Some people are saying, you know what? We're just going to buy because we're secure in our jobs. We're sick of paying higher rent prices. There are people coming in off the sidelines, I would say. Let's key on that positivity. We, we had mentioned before this idea that the consumer may be showing signs of stress. There are anecdotal pieces of evidence and maybe even some harder pieces out there. But still, generally speaking, it's good. What exactly is good for the consumer right now? Confidence is on the rise, right? Mm -hmm. And we do see people have at least keeping their buying power in some ways. Is that all there is or is there more to that picture? Wage growth starting to outpace inflation, that's a big deal. So real wage growth. Yes, hopefully we see more of that. The strong job market is a big underpinning here. It is a very K-shaped economy. We do have this element of the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. We see that with something like credit cards where half of credit card holders pay in full and they get cash back and they get travel rewards and all these benefits. The other half, they're paying record high interest rates and accumulating record high balances. I think we see that divide there really in credit cards more than anything. Car loans too, though. It's actually prices that have been a bigger obstacle than rates. I mean, yes, rates have gone up, but the bigger hit is that a new car now costs you $50,000. And we're starting to see delinquencies at somewhat worrisome levels for credit cards and car loans, highest in about a decade. Um, Even there, though, people are hanging in there. Ted, a lot of Experts, economists, and, and, and market watchers have been talking for months, if not over a year now at this point, about the tailwinds from COVID subsiding, the stimmy checks and all of those things starting to wear off, people drawing on savings, using credit cards more. Is that an accurate way to describe the health of the U.S. consumer right now? And if it is or isn't, what's the main thing you would key on? I think it's accurate. What I think is interesting is, remember last year there was all this talk about we shifted our spending. So it was less goods and it was more services. We were traveling, we were going to concerts and going out to eat. I feel like we've started to see a pullback there. Some of the airlines, most notably Delta, was kind of downbeat about future bookings and their recent earnings. Maybe this two years of pent-up demand is starting to wane. But then again, goods had a bit of a comeback during the holiday season. So that's where I say consumers aren't feeling great about things. But the actual data, I think, is more positive than sentiment. So I I do think people are hanging in there because the job market is strong. All right. Ted Rossman, Bankrate Senior Industry Analyst. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. Coming up on the show, social media CEOs are testifying on Capitol Hill today. Lawmakers looking for assurances that America's children will be safe on their platforms. We'll have the fiery details of that testimony in that hearing coming up after this commercial break. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. CEOs of Snapchat, Meta Platforms, and X, among the high-profile social media executives testifying on Capitol Hill today, trying to reassure lawmakers that they're working to ensure child safety on their respective platforms. What you're seeing right now is a live shot of that testimony that's still ongoing in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Julia Borston joins us now with the story there and some of the more shocking moments that we've seen so far. Julia. Yeah, Dom, one moment unlike anything I've seen before in a big tech hearing on Capitol Hill, and there have been several. Senator John Hawley pressing Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, asking if he has compensated any of the victims or families of the victims for the harm that Meta's platforms have caused. Zuckerberg saying he has not. Hawley then calling on the families to hold up pictures of their children and prompting Zuckerberg to apologize to them. Here's that moment. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? I, I, I'm sorry for everything that you have all been through. It's terrible. No one should have to go through the things that your families have, have suffered. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing industry big efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. This comes as a number of senators have called for reform of or elimination of Section 230, which shields the platforms for, from any liability for the content that is shared on their platforms. Now, Senators Klobuchar and Senators Graham both stressing that nothing will change until these platforms can be sued. Dom? Uh, Julia Zuckerberg, uh, you're seeing, a, by the way, a live shot of him right now. He continues that testimony with the other CEOs that are there. We also know that Linda Yaccarino of X is there, notably absent. We've reported that you've reported on YouTube is not there. What exactly are the expectations that maybe lawmakers have out of this? And, and by the way, I would also point out that it seems like Mark Zuckerberg at this point looks like a seasoned veteran with regard to these appearances on Capitol Hill. And he doesn't seem phased like he has in the past. Yeah, Zuckerberg has certainly done a number of these. Look, I think that the senators are asking for commitments from the CEOs to do more. Um, they're expressing a lot of frustration that these platforms understand that there is the posting and sharing of CSAM, this sexualized material of kill kids, and that they have to be reactive and be taking, taking it down and sometimes not fast enough. Um, they're also asking for support of specific bills. They want specific support for their legislation. We're hearing that about um, a number of different pieces of legislation. And the conversation is also going into other topics, such as the fact that these platforms have been used to sell illegal drugs and, and people have died as a result. So the intent of today's hearing is to focus on child sexual exploitation, but it really is touching on a number of different topics. And this question of accountability is front and center, Dom. All right. As you can see there, folks, the uh, testimony is live and ongoing right now. And Julia Borston will be monitoring that fully. And we'll look for reporting later on. Julia, thank you very much. We'll see you later on. All right. Coming up on the show, the financials ETF, that ticker X, uh, XLF, the Spider Financials ETF, is hitting a 52-week high ahead of the Fed decision. But it's a very different picture for some of the regional banks in America today. We'll tell you what's weighing on the smaller and mid-cap players and check in with the CEO of Frost Bank. Coming up next, keep it right here. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Spider Regional Bank ETF, ticker KRE, is down more than 3% today on pace for its worst day since last May. 
Shares of New York Community Bank Corp. having the biggest drag, plunging more than 37% on an earnings miss thanks to massive net charge-offs and loan loss provisions being increased. NYCB also slashed its dividend by more than 70, 70%. Other regional banks are down in sympathy, but my next guest says because of its location, his bank is somewhat insulated from certain stressors that NYCB is currently feeling. Here for more on in an exclusive interview is Phil Green, the chairman and chief executive officer of Frost Bank. Uh, Phil, thank you very much for being here with us right now. Your geography is one that's tilted more towards the southwestern United States and Texas in particular. So take us through the reasons why you feel NYCB is having the issues that it's having right now and why maybe your geography isn't feeling the same kind of localized pressures. Well, Don, first of all, thanks for having me on the show today. And, you know, the way I'd respond to that is uh, it's like real estate. All right. The most important thing is location, location, location. And I, while I'm not familiar with the details of the uh, community bank situation in uh, New York, I am familiar with Texas. And Texas, <clears throat> this part of the country, we're having 1,300 people per day move into the state. Those people need places to live. Those people have places to work. And so that is a real key ingredient of the success that we're having in the state of Texas right now. And I think it's a key ingredient of why portfolios may be different at different regional banks around the country. Well, speaking of portfolios, one of the main common threads that many of these smaller and mid-sized banks in America have at least mentioned or at least addressed in some way, shape or form is this notion that commercial real estate, office space, uh, multifamily housing, some of those bigger construction projects are ones that could be vulnerable. Is that the case where you are in Texas, uh, and is it a concern for you guys as well? Well, Don, it's a risk business, right? It's commercial banking, and if uh, you know if it was easy, they'd be having teenage boys do it. But the, uh, the the truth is that I think the important thing in real estate is is what your structure is, what your what your sponsorship is, what your project is. And it's really not the the most important thing, what you're doing today. It's what you've done over the last three years. Okay, Phil, just hold on one second here. We've got some breaking news. We are watching the CEOs that were testifying on Capitol Hill with regard to safeguarding America's children on social media. They are currently leaving right now. Hold on. We just saw Mark Zuckerberg leaving. We're watching the parade continue right now. Okay, we're just, we're, we're, what we're seeing right now, viewers can see it right now. We're trying to get a mic in front of them. These families where these kids are dead. Step back. Okay, so viewers, what they just saw right now was Mark Zuckerberg at Meta Platforms saying nothing, giving no comment to reporters on his way to his SUV and speeding off. Uh, we will bring you more details as we know more on any of the other departures that are happening right now. So we'll keep you abreast on what's going on there. Leader, uh, listeners on SiriusXM, again, Mark Zuckerberg not saying anything to reporters on his way out from Capitol Hill. Let's return now to Phil Green from Frost Bank about what's happening with regard to the banking picture overall. One of the things that we want to talk about is the health of the consumer out there. Are you seeing signs of strength, relative weakness? Where do you think the consumer is in America and specifically in your home geography of Texas? Right. Well, Dom, I think what we're seeing is some softening, but it depends on the segment. You know, we are 
banking people who have really large retail high-end areas uh, in North Texas, they say that the, that the activity there has been tremendous. Which you talk to some of the, um, the freight haulers and those types of things, and they're seeing a slight slowdown in some of the activity that they've had. So it really depends on the area. I think uh, that we'd say overall is the consumer is, is strong still, and it's largely because they have jobs. And in this part of the country, in Texas, jobs are continuing to grow. And so the consumer has been relatively strong. Phil, just a couple seconds left here. What advice would you give Jay Powell? <laughs> Read the numbers. Don't be afraid. All right. Read the numbers. Don't be afraid, says Phil Green at Frostbank. Thank you very much. Please come back and see us again soon, sir. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you very much for that. That does it for the exchange. And of course, we are just a few minutes away from that big Fed interest rate decision. Nothing is expected, but we'll hear fireworks perhaps during the press conference. I'm going to join Courtney Reagan on Power Lunch, which picks up the coverage coming up after this quick break. Again, just a little over six minutes away from that big Fed rate decision. We'll see you on the other side of this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.